By 1981, Lawrence Duffy had been a member of Angarda Shiakana for more than a decade. He was one of the first at the scene of the Stardust fire. He's voiced here by an actor. We knew it would be busy anyway on a Friday. So we would have taken an early break. And later on, we, we got a call to say there was a fire down at the Stardust. But we could actually hear something. It's quite a distance, but not that far as the crow flies from Santry over. I went down on my motorbike. There was no fire brigade or anything there at this stage. And a patrol car pulled up just after me with two lads in it. It's amazing the way things happen. A fella came busting out of the crowd with a handbag just after robbing it. And one of the lads in the patrol car grabbed him, grabbed the bag. But that was it. We were too busy to do anything about it anyway. We don't know if the bag thief that Garda Duffy saw is the same that stole Anne Rose's bag at the end of episode two. Duffy and the other first responders had other things to worry about. They had a massive job on their hands when they arrived at the scene in the early hours of Valentine's Day 1981. Firefighter Dave Fitzgerald was driving an ambulance that night and he was also one of the first on the scene. Yeah, when the call came in, I was on an ambulance and we were out in Darndale, which is very close to the Stardust. It was a false alarm. We were on our way back to Buckingham Street Fire Station and we were told, we might have been only now two, three minutes away from the Stardust, we were told there was a big disco down in the Stardust and there was a lot of calls in, for, in from it that there was a fire in it. We would go down and check it out and there was a fire engine on the way. We just turned a corner and we were there and so we were the first firefighters, paramedics at the Stardust that night and about a couple of minutes later a fire engine arrived. When we got there, not an awful lot of flames, um, lots of smoke coming out the windows and looked like thousands but it was obviously hundreds and hundreds of kids just running out of, out of the Stardust and everyone was you know, I got maybe 200 metres of the, of the building and I couldn't go any further with the amount of people running out and everyone, it was just chaos, everyone wanted to jump into the ambulance and everybody was, was injured enough and some of them were badly injured. Only a few minutes before Duffy and Fitzgerald's arrival, it's likely that plenty of people in the Stardust didn't even know there was a fire. Lorraine MacDonald didn't. Her sister Theresa, who was there with her own friends, came over to warn her. And we were sitting there, I was talking to some bloke, yapping away, and the fire had broken out, but I, at that stage, I was at the very beginning of it, I wasn't aware of it. Next thing I knew, she had forgotten about her own safety because she was so close to the main door, she could have went out that way. She didn't. If you understand, if she ran over to me, it was like running across, if I say a football pitch, the length of a football pitch, almost to tell me there was a fire. And she ran up to me, forgetting about her own safety, and told me, Lorraine, get out, there's a fire. And I went, oh, no, go, just go now, I said. And I could still see her as like a picture, turning to go back that direction. Linda Bishop had a good view of what was happening beyond the blind, separating the West Alcove from the rest of the Stardust. Like others, she thought it was a fire that could be easily put out. We got up to dance then. Of course, didn't think there was a fire anywhere, you know. Didn't smell smoke or anything. Um, so one of my friends said, ah, come on, before it, you know, it's going to be over, we'll get up and dance. So we went up and we're having a dance. The next thing, looked and the, the barrier was up. It's like a big blind, it was really basically what it was like. That was up and it was like there was a fire in that area but it looked like to me I would describe it as a sofa on fire that's the size of the fire that we saw and 
I kind of we stood it for a minute and I thought, will we win the loo? Will we have a smoke? Will we, you know, while they put this out? Because it really looked like a fire that they were going to be able to get under control. The timings for what happened next are crucial. The situation escalated so rapidly. 1.30am. Around this time is when people first smell smoke. The report highlights one witness, Anthony Bannon, who was heading back to his seat after the competition. He sees smoke coming from under a blind and he tells a bouncer. Soon after this, others look under that blind and see flames. 1.33am. That's when Linda first realises something is wrong. I looked at my watch and it was 1.33. I was after getting one of these digital watches pressed, the light came on. So I remember hitting the light and looking and saying, 1.33, now they're turning the heating on. 1.37am. Linda sees the flames, but the music continues to play and most people are completely unaware, dancing to the song Lorraine by Bad Manners. More and more people drift over to the blinds and look under it, into the West Alcove, to see what's happening. 1.40am. Around this time, someone tells a doorman, Patrick J. Murphy, that there's a fire. He runs to exit two and shouts at Leo Doyle, another doorman, to call the fire brigade. He rushes over to the blind and sees the flames himself. DJ Colin O'Brien looks at his watch at around 1.40 and sees the fire. He puts another record on. 30 seconds later, he notices that the flames have grown much higher, as if the ceiling itself was on fire. It's spreading towards the main bar and smoke begins to fill the room. He gets on the microphone and makes an announcement. Don't panic. Everything's under control. Move quietly to the exits. 1.42 a.m. That's when Peter O'Toole calls 999 to report the stolen bag. I'm at the start of disco, can you hear me? And my girlfriend's handbag was robbed. More doormen noticed the commotion, grabbed fire extinguishers and tried to put out the fire. The flames on the chairs are drawing closer and closer to the big blinder curtain, the partition that separated the West Alcove from the rest of the Stardust. 1.43 a.m. Parts of the blind are lifted up by staff, trying in vain to put out the fire. Barman Lawrence Neville sees the fire from the bar through the gap in the blinds. It's clear it's growing out of control. The flames at this stage are jumping from row to row. He describes it as shooting like a fireball across a row of seats. These were also coated with PVC and filled with polyuterine foam, both highly flammable. Lawrence runs into the Silver Swan pub next door and tries to ring 999 from a phone at the back of the bar. It won't work. It could only call numbers within the complex and needed to be switched over to the public phone. He rushes to find someone who can help. Another barman gets the telephone working and Lawrence quickly gets through to Dublin Fire Brigade. Would you come down to the Stardust Club and Artane as fast as you can? There's a large fire. There's, there's over 800 people in the place. For God's sake, come quick. It's, it's getting out of control. In that one minute, things had already escalated. This all happens just three minutes after the DJ had announced something is wrong. The fire is completely out of control. People can now see flames on the ceiling and smoke is filling the entire ballroom. 1.44 a.m. The music stops. The DJ makes another announcement, telling people to leave. Panic spreads as the smoke thickens and the roof begins to collapse. Looked and like people was like on the dance floor. We walked over near our coats and bags because we hadn't left our coats and bags in the locker room that night. And we went over to get our coats and bags and literally the DJ made another announcement then. 
um, like for everyone to make their way to the nearest exit, that the fire is out of control. Kind of didn't panic initially, but within, I'm going to say seconds, because it wasn't even minutes. It was suddenly seconds and people started to, you know, move or run or, you know, and then a friend of mine appeared in front of me and said, I have your coat and your bag, we're going. Right. So I said, okay. But when we again, we made our way over to the front door, which was like it wasn't far away, but already there was a bottleneck. There was a group of people. So the door was that size. Right. So the group of people was that size trying to get out this door. And I got pushed back against the wall. At this stage, the ceilings on fire, the the noise of the fire. I remember standing there and I just looked and thought, I'm not going to get out that way. And I don't know another way out. I did not know where the other exits were. And I just thought for a couple of seconds, okay, this is probably it. And uh, I heard the DJ saying, like, there's, there's a, don't panic, just there's a fire at the back there. Just, you know, uh, be careful. Like, you know, we're all going to get out of here. You know, go to the exits and that, you know. I remember roaring to them when when I seen the flames and I was, get out, there's a fire, get out, there's a fire. The last thing I remember was like the music stopping and the lights going out. But when he was saying that, everything just went black. But everything just went black. And it was left in pitch dark with fire, tick black smoke and fire coming down on top of us. By 1.45am, it was chaos in the stardust. The lights failed and plunged the club into darkness. The alcove was completely alight. The ballroom filled with smoke and the ceiling was starting to give way in other parts of the club. So like we were about six foot away from the door at this stage and then the whole thing came crashing down. The last thing I remember was um, the, the place was filled with thick black smoke and the flames was lashing across the ceiling and thought the ceiling was collapsing. And we we're trying to get out and then like with the panic of everybody, 840 odd people in there that night, the whole lot was just pushed to the ground and trampled on. And I was just kept saying, oh God, please help us, help us. But literally lying on the floor, right, and looking at people trying to open the doors, they couldn't open them. It was like wild animals trying to get out. You know the way I ended up getting out? See, being pushed by the crowd and through the, the doors. Uh, I think it was one of the chain doors we got out, because I remember people trying to get out the door. And I remember landing them on the ground outside. You know the trolleys that they collect the bottles on? I remember one of them. I ended up, I, I mind hurting my back. I think one of them was on top of me, but every way we all came out the doors, it's, it, it was like a stampede. It was like wild animals trying to get out. I don't know how we got out. We just, to whatever way the crowd was pushing, there was a door at the side there and we just got out, like, you know what I mean? And about 20 of us fell out and there was people just running out on fire. No short of me when I got out. Can I get out the door? No short of me. Because people just grabbing me and that, you know, just trying to find a way because it was dark. And you know, there was a sand pit there, like, you know, I got outside and I seen there was scares running out on fire and that. And the only thing that was there was sand, there was sand. I don't know if it was the underwrite thing or not, but I was, was actually putting them out anyway. We were grabbing them out and just throwing them on the ground and just trying to roll them and that just to get the flames because I think this stuff was stuck to them, you know. We just got out then and there was hundreds of people just running around, mad of us. Catherine Darling had been to the Stardust so many times, she knew it inside out. The fourth door they tried to get out was locked. She had to find another way. There was a fire exit towards the back, but she also needed to find her younger sister, Susan. A big long corridor down the back. But it was pitch black when we were going through the corridor. There was no lights on in it. Just as we just kept walking, we were kind of just feeling our way along the wall. 
and everybody kept, that was behind us kept saying just keep walking just keep walking just keep walking and eventually when we got through we could just see the light at the back and we came down like a metal staircase at the back that metal staircase is still there today and uh, that was the, the the exit that we got out and then I came around looking for her then because what happened was when when I seen the the fire we were sitting up towards going towards exit one if you look at the map you'll see where it is the bar was there and we were I was sitting up that way I was up talking to Brian Duffy I when I looked down I could see all the the smoke billowing out of the kitchen part right and I said the fucking place is on fire right and I said I have to go I have to go down and see where and I was running back down to get home and he said no for fuck's sake you can't get up get out get out so he was the one that made me leave that night because I was running back down to see where she was little did I know she was already out and all at that stage mm. but I could close my eyes here and I could direct you from the time you got in that door where every exit was where the toilets were where the bar was where the dance floor was everywhere because I knew that place like the back of me bleeding hand mm. and because uh, we were always in it like and I knew that exit was up there I knew how to get out of it but I was expecting the lights to be on and they weren't it was pitch dark I was like where the hell the fuck are we going to get out of here people were fumbling in the dark trying to get out the club was essentially a tinderbox. The furnishings inside were making this an intense fire that was spreading fast. The ceiling, which was made of polyester fibre panels with a PVC backing, began to drip onto people and smoke filled their lungs. There were six exits from the Stardust. One of the emergency exits, Exit 3, had been locked with a chain and padlock and had been for the entire night. The other emergency exits were unlocked, but exits four, five and six had a lock and chain draped around the bars. This practice was introduced at the Stardust because it was claimed that people inside the club were letting their friends in so they didn't have to pay. This led to some people who were trying to escape thinking the doors were in fact locked. The practice was enforced to such an extent that later reports found that Eamon Butterly gave the order that the emergency exits were to remain locked until midnight or 12.30am on disco nights. There was no one person responsible for unlocking the doors. Exit 3 was the one that was locked. Three women who'd seen the fire from outside the ladies' toilet made for that exit. When they reached the door, one of them remembered fumbling with the chain. They shouted, the bloody door is locked. A number of young men came along. No panic, no panic, they said. They kicked and kicked and eventually the doors burst open. Exit 4 had a chain and padlock wrapped around it and so did exit 5, but neither were locked. This caused confusion in the darkness and led to a crush. Outside exit 5 was a skip. A number of people gave evidence of either falling over the skip as they were going out or being held up as it was pushed out of the way. Of the more than 800 people in the Stardust, only 100 made it out of exits 1 and 6 combined. Most people tried to get out the way they came in, the front entrance of the venue, known as exit 2. It's now around 1.46am. Linda's friend grabbed her and tried to get her out the front entrance. It's human nature to behave like this in an emergency, 
so it's not surprising so many people tried to get out this way as well. And a friend of mine, Valerie Walsh, grabbed me by the, the girl who initially handed me my bag, but there was so much confusion, but she grabbed me again and said, come on, we're getting out of here. And she had dragged me through that door, I don't know how. But then I lost her, everything was pitch black. I fell in the hallway um, and uh, I hope it was coats I fell over, you know, just always said it to myself, I hope it was coats. Um, so managed to get back on my feet because I thought if I don't get up, there were still people coming out and I managed to get myself back up on my feet. Couldn't see a thing. There was thick black smoke because every breath I took hurt. You know what I mean? I managed, I actually bumped into a stair post and I knew then where I was and I knew the door was that way. But I did think to myself for a second, will I go up the stairs? Is it, will I get out quicker? Will I, there's a window at the top of those stairs. I knew there was windows at the top of those stairs. But I just thought, now the air is going to come in any minute now. I'm going to feel the breeze. I'm going to get a breath of air. But it didn't, you know, as realised later, the smoke was billowing out. There was no fresh air coming in. So I was out, fell down a couple of steps. I was on my hands and knees vomiting. And I kind of thought then that I was sort of getting rid of because I knew I'd swallowed a lot of smoke or inhaled a lot of smoke. And people were starting to gather with finding friends. I think I managed to find my group of friends. We all found each other and we're looking at the building. There's guys climbing up at the windows, people screaming. It was horrendous. And um, I don't know how long we stood there for, but I know we all, we, we found each other, the group that I went in with. The small fire from less than 20 minutes ago was now gutting the entire nightclub. As those inside struggled to get out, people in the surrounding area started to notice that something was going on. Some of the club goers who'd left a few minutes before, they turned back to see the stardust ablaze. Residents saw the bright light from the fire as the flames rose above the building. Taxi drivers followed the trail of smoke. The hundreds of young people who escaped gathered outside the stardust with nearby residents. Some were still trying to get people out of the club. Men could be seen pulling on metal bars that covered the bathroom windows. These were blocking people trapped inside from escaping. Others simply looked on in shock. It was a challenging situation for emergency services who arrived at the scene at around 1.50am. Garda Lawrence Duffy, on his motorbike, said his first instinct was to get as many injured people away from the scene as quickly as possible. Taxis had started to queue outside the complex with the intention of helping people get to hospital. Duffy told them to grab all the walking wounded they could. He led a convoy of more than a dozen taxis into the Matter Hospital before returning to the Stardust. But even before emergency services arrived, an incredibly brave local resident, Michael Kelly, heard the crackling of flames and went down to the Stardust at around 1.45am. He went inside through the lantern rooms and managed to pull three people out of the Stardust. At that stage, the emergency services were already on their way, with the force units of Dublin Fire Brigade arriving not long after guarded Duffy at around 1.51am. As crews approached the area, all they had to do was follow the smoke billowing from the Stardust that was visible from miles around. When Dave Fitzgerald arrived with his senior colleague Paddy Cunningham, it wasn't a scene they could have expected. We'd never experienced anything like this. We've seen some tragedy in the, within those seven years, but nothing this scale. From the time I pulled up to the time we went around to open the back doors of the ambulance to put some people into it to get them to the hospital, the ambulance was full. There was at least 
10, 12, more even people in the back of the ambulance. Some were badly injured and some weren't. And all that we could do would be try and get the people who weren't injured to get over to try and get moving. I think we got about seven or eight people out. I jumped into the, in the, the fire engines were just arriving at the stage to move off and the ambulance wouldn't move. It just wouldn't move. It was down on its hunkers as such. And the suspensions were was completely down. There were too many people in the ambulance. I had to go back, jump back out. And if you can imagine, like coming out Crow Park, there's just hundreds and hundreds of people all around me, just kind of pulling me, pulling me to say, I want to go in the ambulance, I want to go in the ambulance. Um, um, I was being pulled and kicked and trying to get back to the back of the ambulance, trying to get people out. I remember just one person just kept poking me from behind and I was just telling people to get out of the ambulance. I was asking Paddy, who was the senior man at the back of the ambulance, I needed people out because the, the ambulance wouldn't move off. And he was kind of like, it was like, it was terrible. We were telling people to get off the arms and this guy kept poking me and I, was, and I was being pulled and it was just chaos. And I remember turning around to kind of tell this fella to, you know what, that I wanted to just get going. And he was just standing there and he had his girlfriend um, in his arms straight out to me and just kept saying to me, can you look after my girlfriend? And I looked after her, just looked down. And here was this kid, like, I don't know, 18, 19, badly burnt. And I knew she was in serious trouble and I couldn't believe it. And I just took her off his hands and then put her on the floor of the ambulance. By this time, many more ambulances and fire engines had arrived at the scene. Station officer Noel Mooney recalled to later investigations seeing people in hysterical condition many suffering from burns. He said that as soon as they established that there were still people alive inside, they decided the priority should be rescuing them. Some people had mistaken toilet doors for exits in the darkness, bringing them to a dead end. A number of the firemen put breathing apparatus on and went into the stardust as colleagues made efforts to put out the blaze. Firemen later gave evidence to the tribunal about their efforts to save the people trapped inside. Fireman McGee said that when he returned to exit 6, he was told by somebody that there were people in the toilets and that he should get breathing apparatus on. He saw a number of people in a collapsed condition in the toilets and helped to carry out four of them to exit 5. Fireman Hosbach succeeded in getting as far as the men's toilet where there was intense heat. He kicked open the door of the toilet and ascertained that there were still people in there. He then went back to the spirit store and called for breathing apparatus which was handed to Fireman O'Rourke from outside the building and then to Fireman Hosback. He then succeeded in getting people out of the toilet and into the spirit store, where they were helped out the window by Fireman O'Rourke and Sub-Officer Parks. While he was in the toilets, Fireman Hosback tried to assist three of the people there by allowing them to breathe through his breathing set. This was with a view to giving them sufficient strength to come out of the building. The firefighters faced a complex, fast-moving situation. They were hampered by problems with their equipment and a lack of training for a fire of this scale. After seven minutes, the water from the tank of one of the forced fire engines on the scene ran out. The fire was still blazing. The evidence established that the pressure of the water from the main supply on the fire ground itself on the night of the fire was, for a time, inadequate. Station Officer Rowan said that when his crew accessed the hydrant, the pressure was poor. 
and Mr. Michael Kelly said that he saw one of the hoses from one of the appliances kinking. Firefighters later spoke of a lack of leadership and coordination as they fought the fire. Still, they did everything they could. And despite all these problems, most of the fire was brought under control by 10 past two. Many were praised for their bravery, rushing into the intense fire to rescue people. A decision was made at around 2.12 a.m. that the state's major accident plan should be put into place. This involved notifying everyone, the Army, the Air Corps, Dublin Airport, the Red Cross, St. John's Ambulance and the Order of Malta. It was put into place when an incident involved 25 or more casualties. Emergency control centres would be set up to coordinate all the agencies involved. However, the fire brigade had a slightly different version of this plan. It did not mention who was responsible for implementing the initial stage. This is the exchange that took place at that time between the officer on duty at the Garda Communication Centre in Dublin Castle and a member of Dublin Fire Brigade. Yes, the guards here. We've heard back through our car from one of your chiefs that this is a major accident. Phase one. What? That's correct, you. What does that mean in our language? It means that you will have a list there. You're in control, aren't you? You will have a list there. Who to notify? All the hospitals. Dangerous buildings. We'll do most of it anyway. All hospitals? Yes. Now the only way you can help us out is if you get CIE with the single deck buses for the non-urgent cases up there. Or if any of your cars that are available to shunt them into some of the hospitals. Yes, we have all our mobiles on the way out there to get them in. Yes, we've had 10 ambulances. That's the best we can do. We have our cars taking them in also. But all we have to do is... You have notified the hospitals, is it? We are looking after that end of it. And you've got to contact CIE to see if they can produce any single deck buses. Yes, and if you can, have you got a direct line to any of the army barracks there? To where? To see if they can help with any ambulances, any of the army barracks. What's stage two? Now he says major accident phase two. That's it. The shit has hit the fan, so... What? The shit has hit the fan. Is that right? What does that mean? It means everything is notified. Army, the whole lot. That's everyone notified, right? You want everyone notified? Yes. Right you are. Thanks. Errol Buckley had gotten out. The disco competition a matter of minutes ago couldn't be further from his mind. He was now focusing on finding his brother Jimmy. He ran to each exit, but couldn't find him. And we were all asked, did you see him? Did you see him? Did you see Jimmy? You know, and everyone said, we've seen him a few times looking for you and all that. So we were more or less saying, it's all our own family out and Christine and all them. But Jimmy was in looking for me a few times. And this just went on and on until about four o'clock in the morning, just running around with the sandwiches everywhere, you know. People again screaming their head off. So um, we couldn't find Jimmy. I said, where's, where's he gone? He's gone home. See, you'd no phone, you'd no. There was nothing there. It was absolutely, you had to go to a farm box to make a, a car, like, you know what I mean? Catherine and Susan Darling had also made it out. It hadn't quite sunk in yet how dire the situation was. And then when you got outside then, everybody was screaming. Panic outside. Panic, the somehow. panic outside was unreal. And I remember saying to that, that fireman, he said, nah, every, I'd say everybody's out. Like we had come out and we had eventually, after seven of us went together, and luckily the seven of us got out. We were blessed that the seven of us got out together. But we were split up for a while, and when we did eventually find one another, 
we thought it was really, I don't mean to just sound bad, but we thought it was exciting. You know, we weren't going home. No way were we going home. We weren't missing all this excitement that was going on because we still didn't realise how bad it was, how many people had been killed, really and truly. And we were freezing because we know coats are happening. And all the people that come out of houses and anybody that, that was out on the roads or out in different pubs around that night, I think everybody just headed towards the service to see if they could help. Antoinette Keegan and her sisters Mary and Martina were among those who didn't get out straight away. When the lights went out and the smoke descended, they were trapped. Antoinette lost consciousness. Next thing she knew, she was outside, about to be rushed to hospital. What we done was we formed a chain. We said we'd hold one another's hands, right, and we'd get out. We'd all get out together. But literally when we were pushed to the ground, we were on the ground and the last, like, I just, the, the smoke was so heavy and so intense, right, that it was actually burning your throat and you were gasping for your breath and you couldn't breathe and the fire was coming down top of you, trying to hold your hand on your head and trying to hold your hand over your mouth to stop inhaling the thick black smoke. But the last thing I remember was being unconscious then. I was gone. I thought, like, this, I'm gone. And then I woke up, I got up in a different atmosphere. Um, a fella had been outside when the door was opened and seen me with white blouse, it was Martina's blouse. She had loaned it to me that night and he came in and kicked his hand and dragged me out. So I was literally outside then and I was screaming for Mary and Martina. Where's Mary and Martina? And an ambulance man told me everyone is out. They're all gone to the hospitals. You have to get in the ambulance. Everyone's out. So I remember when I got outside, my face was stinging and my hands were stinging and there was a heap of sand or soil there. And I remember going over and like to cool my face down, taking the sand and the soil up and pushing it onto my face and rubbing it into my hands. So um, like I got into the ambulance then. The ambulance was full with people and like there was people that night like even couldn't get into ambulances. There was taxis taking them and the public was coming to support them or to bring them to hospital, transport them. Yeah, I was the last one getting in and we went to every hospital. We went to Jervis Street, the Matter, the Maid, St. Vincent's. We went to literally all the hospitals, St. James's, and uh, we were told, like, you know, the, the porters was out like that, putting their hands up to say, full, full. Ended up down in Dr. Stevens's hospital. That was the last hospital that took us in. Yvonne Graham lost her friends in the confusion. When she was put in an ambulance, she had no idea where they were. I mean, squealing and squealing at the door and roaring and about our Christine and Anne and Fanola and Susie. And none of them. And then Christine, I remember Christine and Anne, them coming out and them as black as your boot. And what they call it, they says Fanola had already left and they think that Susie had left. But by then we ended up then, what they call it, everybody was, it was just like mayhem and we were all getting put on the ambulances and that and people were getting carted in the ambulances and I ended up getting put on the one of the ambulances and taken to the hospital. So Christine, I think, was on another ambulance and Anne was on another one. They must have been because they weren't in the same ambulance as me and it was just all... It was kind of like a like a dream now, do you know what I mean? And you're thinking, did that happen or did it not happen? Or Garda Lawrence Duffy's night was far from over. As soon as he was back to the Stardust, he was preparing to lead another convoy of ambulances and taxis into town. After the escort to the matter, I went straight back to the starters. The place was thronged, ambulances, fire brigades, the lot. One of the guards who stayed out there 
said he had a terrible trouble in getting the fire brigade in. But sure, the entire crowd was in shock. I did a few more escorts to the Mather, Jervis Street, Vincent's, wherever. I remember there was a very heavy frost that night. I was the only lunatic out on the motorbike that night. And I remember coming back over the Talbot Bridge and the bike went up. I came off and slid along the ice, but I managed just to hop back on and keep going. You know, there must have been someone protecting me that night. While all this was happening, as the survivors escaped, as people who were trapped were rescued, as the fire was being put out, fireman Dave Fitzgerald was still struggling to get out of the crowd. He took the last of the injured into his ambulance, including the badly burned woman. Once free of the crowd, they floored it into the city centre, into the Matter Hospital, where the grim reality of what was happening was apparent. I was kind of hemmed in, but these ambulances couldn't get as far down as I was because I was caught in them in right up at it. So the other ambulances were taking people from the outskirts of all these hundreds of people running around the place. And I had to get four or five cops to kind of push me way through the crowds to get my ambulance out. And I'd say I would have been the first ambulance there and the last ambulance out of hospital. I remember getting to the hospital then. It, we went to the Matter Hospital and... It was kind of, I think it was nearly at full stage. I mean, to go to the hospital, uh, I was in there and I kind of said, told this nun that I, she needed to come out and have a look at this girl. And she was just saying, no, you got to go to the hospital. And this doctor was there. He ran down and he just told me to bring her in. And I brought her in and carried her in. There was no no, no time for stretchers, just carried the young one in. And he just told me to put her down on that little mattress and bring the rest of the people in and then they were going off call. And before I got back into the ambulance, she'd passed away. Um, and then we were just going up and down to, to the hospital all night from, from the, the scene, yeah. Next time on Stardust. There's had to be a phone call from Dublin. There had to be a serious fire in the Stardust and uh, Caroline is missing. I came back to the house the devastation was clear and of course at that point the devastation was sort of compounded by the f- fact that it was believed to have been an arsonist from their own community. Well I identified her, her ring and her trousers, what was left of the trousers and a bit of the shirt I think it was. So that was how we, we found out that Susie was dead. So that it was Cecilia. Like we went to all the funerals that we could go to. Yeah, that you had the, what would you say, that you could cope with. Thank you for listening to episode three of Stardust. I'm Sean Murray and this podcast is produced by Nikki Ryan with executive producer Christine Bowen. In this and other episodes, you'd have heard recreations from real phone calls and testimonies from witness reports. And in all of these, we've tried to keep as close to the originals as possible. Over the next few days and weeks on our Twitter page at Stardust Pod, we'll be sharing further excerpts from witness reports and these tribunal reports to give you more of an idea about what people saw and what people witnessed that night. If you like this podcast, please give us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next Thursday, 31st of October, with episode 4.